0: Hello and welcome into the Orlando Drummer Podcast, episode 32. Hope you guys are doing well today. I'm doing a solo episode today. We're gonna do a little bit of Q&A. And it's always funny when I ask questions on um, Instagram specifically. It's always like, it's so black and white. It's either a huge list of really good questions, which is thankfully what we have today, or like a huge list of really bad questions that, that either have super obvious answers or you could definitely answer yourself. Um, anyway, so we're lucky today. It's a really, really good list of questions. I think we have 10 or 12 questions, so uh, we'll do a little bit of a rapid fire style. Uh, but let's see, what I have going on in my world? Um, still prepping for Tam Tam Drum Fest, we're about, what are we, maybe two weeks out. Um, so yeah, getting, getting down to the wire for sure, man. For a while I was doing two a day, so I would run through the entire set. Um, I have about, it's about 30 minutes total of playing, maybe like 25 minutes of playing for the clinic that I'm doing in Spain. And so I've been doing two a day. So 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night. Um, a, a few times I've, I've run the set three times, but man, it got to the point where I would say the last five or six days, the last you know 10 sets that I ran, um, I was really happy with. Like if I played that exact set that I just played note for note on stage uh, in Spain, I would be really happy with it. So it felt like I wanna take a little bit of break, uh, a little bit of a break from practicing, which is something I recommend to everybody. You know, there, there is such a thing as like, like beating the material into the ground where it just becomes stale to you. And it's, it's. I don't, I don't know if over-rehearsed is the right way to say it, um, but you still want the songs to feel fresh and still feel exciting. So for me, I kind of hit this wall where I said, you know what, let me, let me take a few days off. So uh, this weekend, or at least Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, I haven't actually been doing the set, so I'm excited to hit it again Monday and sort of see if, uh, if any of that information sort of settled or digested in my mind a little bit differently. But um, yeah, feeling really good with all that. I think I'm gonna do about 25 minutes of playing and then I've got a very short um, lesson, so we'll be doing somewhat of a traditional clinic in that regard but um, yeah so maybe 20-25 minutes of playing and maybe 15 or 20 minutes of talking and the rest will be left for uh, questions you go over your gear all sorts of fun clinic stuff but yeah, we're getting down to it, man. So very, very exciting. And oh, and actually, another cool thing that I'm working on. Um, I've decided to circle back and do another shed series video for OrlandoDrummer.com. So there's several of these videos live on YouTube if you haven't seen them. But uh, the shed series is basically it's like trading fours with a drum teacher. So. I record four bars of a groove, and then four bars of what you could describe as a drum solo, Um, and then it becomes your turn, and we trade back and forth for 10 minutes at a variety of different tempos. Now the way I've always done these in the past is by subdivision. so there's uh, V1, V2, V3, and each one is a different subdivision. So V1, uh, the only rule when it's your turn to play, you can only play 16th notes for four bars. When it's my turn, I do the same thing. So it really exhausts the subdivision that you're working in. Uh, V2 is all 16th note triplets. Each one of these is at five tempos. And then V3 uh, is five tempos of 30 second notes. Um, So this one that I'm working on now, it's gonna be eight tempos, uh, ranging from, I wanna say about 50 BPM to like 120, somewhere around there. And it is freestyle, so you can play anything. So it was really fun getting creative with some of these as I'm recording it. I've done 50, 60, and 70 BPM so far. Uh, But yeah, I'm gonna be knocking out the rest of those early next week. So that's what I have going on for the next two weeks, basically um, recording and editing the Shed series. Uh, That'll be live during member November. It's coming up soon. Um, And then, yeah, practice for Tam Tam. So that's what I got going on in my world. And uh, yeah, let's hop into some questions. First one here is from akin.drums asking, how do you handle stage fear? So I've addressed this topic um, briefly before on this podcast. There's definitely a clip somewhere uh, on, on my YouTube channel, but stage fear, man, it, it, this is a relevant question for me because I'm certainly dealing with some nerves coming up on you know a gig where I have to open for Dave Weckl and Virgil Donati, for example. Um, man, I, I can tell you that the biggest thing that you can do for yourself, do whatever it is for you that makes up a good day. So if your performance is at night, make sure that that day Includes everything that is in alignment with your well-being by your definition. So, if you like going for a run, if that makes you feel good, if if a good day includes going on a jog in the morning, then make sure you do it on that day. If a healthy day for you, one where you feel good about yourself, you feel good about your body, you feel good about your mental state, you feel good about your playing, you know, if that includes, um, you know, a thirty-minute session on a practice pad in the morning. Do that. If you feel better when you skip breakfast, make sure you skip breakfast on that day. If you feel better when you eat a huge breakfast the moment you wake up, make sure you do that. Um, So just having a a sense of a self-awareness about what makes a good day for you. Make sure that the day of your performance is that kind of day. I promise that will make a huge difference. Really, there's two other things that I would add to that. One is warm up. And warming up takes practice. You know, a lot of times when we go into the practice room or to jam for whatever reason, you know, we're not always warming up very intentionally. We might play lightly at first and then play a little harder later, but an intentional warm up takes some time. So I would say on the day of your performance, dedicate at least 20 minutes, if not 30 or 40 minutes, um, to really like consciously increasing your speed, consciously increasing your power, meaning, you know, play progressively faster and progressively harder during your warm up to give your body a fair shot at getting blood into your muscles, to getting all your, your tendons and your joints nice and loose. So really dedicate some time to physically warming up for sure, and your brain will be warming up along the way. And the third thing I would add to that is that you should practice to the point where if something goes wrong, you you shouldn't necessarily blame your practice because that feeling sucks. If you can avoid that feeling, you always should because not practicing enough is completely on you. That one is pretty exclusively your fault and it's not a good feeling. Most people only will drop the ball due to a lack of practice a couple times in their career because, man, that's a really rough one to deal with. It's a hard pill to swallow. So make sure that you that you at least, you know whatever your excuse might be if you have a poor performance, make sure it's not the excuse that you didn't practice enough. That one is not valid. So those three things I would say. Make sure you have a good day that's in alignment with your well-being and you get to define what that looks like. Uh, make sure that you give your body a fair shot and really, really warm up your physical body before your performance. And then third, make sure that whatever your excuse is for a bad performance, it's not a lack of practice. If those three things are in place, um, it, it'll sort of serve as this process of elimination, where whatever the problem is, it's not your practice, it's not that you weren't warmed up, um, and it's not that you just had like an off day, right? If you can solve for those three, most of the time you'll find that whatever type of anxiety or nervousness comes along with your performance is pretty manageable, right? And also keep in mind, you know, give yourself a break. Nerves, sometimes, are normal. You're supposed to be nervous in a high-pressure pressure situation, and you should rely on, let's just say, your evolutionary biology to know what to do. Your body knows how to handle stress, and anxiety, and nerves, and the butterflies. So lean into that feeling, let it be what it is, and cover all the bases that you can. Hopefully that answers your question. Next question is from Jerry Salgado 10. He asked, um, who's a drummer that you could watch all day only on kick, snare, and hats? I actually like this question a lot. Um, One of them would have to be Aaron Spears. He's one of the first ones that comes to mind. And for me, you know, one of the biggest appeals in his playing is, is the power, right? It's almost like an Eric Moore type power where there's just an effortlessness where it's like, I'm trying to think of a, other like adjectives that would go here. Bombastic might be another one, right? Like there's just an explosion of sound, there's an intensity, um, almost how you might describe, if you were describing like an athlete and you said someone's like, like very physical, right? Well, all humans are physical, so what exactly does that word mean? It's almost like there's a physicality like to their presence, like you can hear or sense in some way that they're there. And when I hear a drummer like Aaron Spears play a basic rock beat, there's a certain tone that comes out of the drum where it's like, dude, I can tell he is hitting the shit out of that drum every time, but it doesn't look that way. There's like an effortlessness to the power, and I really enjoy that quality in people's playing, and I'm not convinced that that's something um, that you can learn. Certainly you can learn to have better technique and to hit um, harder in a more efficient way, but the effortlessness of drummers like Aaron Spears Man, that's, uh, that, that, that's something really, really special. So for that reason, I would say kick snare hats only. I think my top choice, at least the one that just comes to mind, is Aaron Spears. And then, of course, you'd have to put Benny Greb on that list um, just for feel alone, right? But for me, I don't know. The um, uh, I'll give you one more. Nate Smith, for sure. He would have to go on there, but more for the groove reason than anything else. Um, and it, it's just so interesting, right, because there's there's so many ways to be expressive when it comes to just kick, snare, and hats, but not everybody feels that way, right? We all know that you can do and say a lot with just these three pieces of the instrument, or three individual instruments if you choose to look at it that way, but there's some drummers who just thrive in that limited, limited musical environment Nate Smith would be one of those for sure he just doesn't need anything else sometimes you know so um yeah those would be my three Nate Smith Benny Greb and Aaron Spears but really cool question man our next question is from Kaylin Barry underscore music and he asks do you find sitting up higher causes less back pain so the short answer to this question is yes it does cause more or sorry it causes less back pain for sure but not in the way that you might think so for me, all of the back pain that I've ever had ended up being related to my hips. Uh, the psoas muscle is a muscle that every drummer should know about. Anybody who sits um, full-time, you should know what the psoas muscle is. I've talked about it extensively before uh, on this podcast, but also in uh, my Yoga for Drummers course, which addresses a lot of common problems that uh, drummers will run into. You can watch the Yoga for Drummer course on Drummer.com. And in that course, I talk about the psoas muscle a lot because for me, uh, this muscle locked up, it's a muscle in your hips. It sort of starts in the front, like your pelvic area, but it actually extends into your lower back. So think of it as a like a, a muscle in your hip that passes through your body. So you can actually feel it in your back as well as in your front sort of pelvis area, like where your hips are. So it attaches very weird in your body. And if your psoas muscle is locked up, you don't necessarily feel it. People don't complain of having a sore or a tight psoas muscle necessarily. What ends up happening is that this muscle, which Functions to stabilize a lot of your hips and low back, when it gets locked up, other muscles in your back will tense up in order to compensate for your psoas muscle. So for me, this translated to pain in the middle of my back. And man, it was a a really confusing pain because it felt like it was my erector spine, which is the long vertical muscles um, that are sort of parallel to your spine. It felt like that's what was hurting. That's where I felt the pain. So I would use a back roller, like a foam roller, do all sorts of stretches, and nothing ever touched it. It never made it feel much better. got massages, none of that actually worked either. Um, And it ended up being these very specific hip stretches, like lunges that I had to do to open up my psoas muscle. Now. I tell you all of that because it shows you how how important it is that your psoas muscle stays loose. And one of the things for me that helps me keep that psoas muscle loose is staying in an active seating position. So what do I mean by active? Well, let's first start with something like posture. I'm sitting up straight right now, but... I'm doing so by choice, right? Nobody has good posture on accident. I'm a firm believer that good posture is very much learned. So it's like this habit that you have to get yourself into. You have to choose to send the neurological signal from your mind to a muscle to activate it and keep that muscle engaged. So if you're sitting and you wanna work on your posture, so much of it is mental, you have to choose to wake up your low back, to wake up your, your chest and your shoulders, to keep them upright. Like It's like a choice that you have to make and you have to continually make that choice until you get into the routine and develop some of that muscle memory where it just becomes sort of habitual that you sit up straight with your chest up and your shoulders back, right? Now when we play drums, I'm a huge believer that you wanna have an active seating position. You don't wanna be plopped down on the throne. You want your whole body to be awake and that requires requires some mental energy, again, to send these neurological signals from your brain by choice, you know, to wake these muscles up. So what does this have to do with throne height? Well, when I'm sitting on a throne, I like to have a certain amount of my body weight still pushing down through my legs onto the floor. I don't like my legs and my hips and my low back to be turned off or to be disengaged when I'm playing drums. To me, I almost want to be in like the ready stance. Like if you see somebody on a football field or a baseball field and you said get ready and they're sort of hunched over with their hips de- hips engaged, that's almost how I want to be on the drum set. Not so much the hunched over part, but certainly an active, a physically active, very ready type of position. Now, when I have an obtuse angle of my hips, meaning my hips are slightly higher than my knees and my feet are a little bit more underneath me, this helps me to feel more activated on the drum set, right? So it helps me feel like I'm a little bit more engaged with the activity that I'm doing. If I lower my throne, it feels like I'm stacked on top of the throne. It feels like the weight comes out of my legs so I can feel my hamstrings turn off and I feel a little bit more like my legs are floating. And that feeling of having my legs floating around underneath me, that is the feeling that I associate with a tight psoas muscle. Because I'm not actively engaging all of these different, uh, all this musculature in the lower portion of my body that is used to support me and to keep me upright. And so as I hit all the off switches on those muscles, begin to relax, stack up on top of the throne and let my legs sort of melt underneath to me this is the exact thing that locked up my psoas muscle and led to all of my back pain. So when I keep an obtuse angle on my hips, I keep my knees slightly lower than my hips. Let's just say my knees are like a little bit below my belt buckle, right? Think of it that way. And again, that obtuse angle on my hips, body straight upright. To me, this sort of allows me to stay more active, it keeps my psoas muscle from locking up, and that translates to a lot less back pain. So, that was a long way around to answer your question, but ultimately, yes, sitting up higher for me causes a lot less back pain. Great question, man, thank you. Next question is from Mr. Dot Music Draw. Um, He asked for tips on making or creating a drum solo. So this is a weird one for me, because I'm not a soloist, you know, self-proclaimed. Not my specialty. I'm not, I'm not great at doing drum solos, but I will give you one tip. I'm not gonna give you a whole bunch because I don't wanna I don't wanna talk in my ass here. It's not like I've got a bunch of drum solos online that are super impressive. But every time I have had to make a drum solo, I've always looked at it this way. There's a structure um, in songwriting that we all know. Even if you've never gone over it in your head, you kind of know what basic song structures are. You've normally got an intro to a song it gets somebody's attention, it sets the the vibe, it's sort of a stage setting sort of area. Then normally you'll go into a verse, I'm just speaking in pop music here, but you go into a verse, maybe you do a pre-chorus, but then you go into your first chorus. Then you kinda repeat, you'll do verse two, pre-chorus two, chorus number two. Then we'll have some version of a bridge, so a very different section, Uh, that's about three quarters of the way into the song, and then you normally return to that chorus, it's chorus three, and then some sort of outro, which frequently will match the intro. a really basic structure for a pop song. So one thing I recommend doing is treating a drum solo like that. So let's just say you wanted to write an intro. You can make that intro, let's just say 16th notes on the hi-hat. That's your intro, it's setting the vibe for what we're going to do. When we get into verse one, it's an eighth note rock beat, just a regular rock beat. The pre-chorus might be like an eighth note buildup with the snare and floor tom, right? You're building, 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 boom, then you hit the chorus. What is the chorus? Maybe it's a 16th note groove, maybe it's a tom groove, right? Then we would repeat all of this again. We go into verse two. Well, we said the verses were an eighth note groove, so you return to that. Then we hit a pre-chorus number two, it's another one of those tom buildups. Then you go into chorus number two, you know, and and then when we get to the bridge, maybe the bridge could be a little bit more of your chops and fills sort of thing. Um, You know, so the idea would be that you can borrow other musical structures to create a solo. And to me, this is the most straightforward way to approach structuring a solo. I think structure is the problem people have when they first approach solos. Like, what goes in what order? How does this not become just a jumbled mess of notes. For me, if I just sit down to improvise a solo, naturally it just comes out as a big jumbled pile of notes, right? It takes a lot of uh, a lot of intentional thought to have a structure to a drum solo. And if that's what we have to do, if we have to bring structure into this, then I, I would say look no further than like a pop song. That's a really basic musical structure that you can use and it will function as a template for the drum solo. Uh, of course, if you want really much higher level advice for um, solo construction, JP Bouvet is is one of my favorites um, he's a, an incredibly talented soloist and he's uh, you know, that that's not by accident um, he certainly put a lot of intentional thought into designing his drum solo so definitely watch some of his YouTube videos on that he's a great guy to go for to, to go to uh, for for getting um, drum solo tips so yeah that's about as far as I'll go with drum solos today I don't wanna I don't want uh, get overconfident here not uh, not my specialty that's for sure. Uh, This next one is from Miguelote2005. He's asking, what tips would you give for left-handed players? Again, we're in another category where hard for me to speak about something that I don't do. I'm a right-handed player. so you know, I don't wanna just make things up necessarily, but I will say that playing left-handed is gonna come with a certain set of pros and cons, right? You're gonna have some strengths and weaknesses built into your playing style, purely based off the fact that you're playing differently than everyone else. So, you know, honestly, I think my advice to like a very young student would be to not flip your kid around, you know? If you haven't already done it, you know, maybe don't do it, you know? So so stick to uh, the hi-hat on the left, the floor toms over on the right, but play open-handed. I would recommend that. Now let me talk through some of the challenges that you're gonna have if you go that way. First of all, everything you learn online is going to be in reverse, right? Unfortunately, that's gonna be the case. So every pattern that you hear, for you, it's going to be like mirrored. And that's annoying, but I would say it's worth, it's worth doing it that way. There's so many advantages to playing open-handed, and you could certainly make the argument that crossing over our hands, well, whoever came up with that dumbass idea, you know, (laughs) clearly wasn't thinking straight. Like, there's so many reasons why you wouldn't want to cross over that there's a part of me that would be like envious of somebody who could start playing the drums with a left-hand lead, meaning it predominantly stays on the hi-hat and it functions as that lead hand, uh, you know, but the kit is set up normal. To me, that's a really, really cool setup. It just logically seems to make the most sense. So I would recommend doing that, and of course know that you're gonna have to bear the burden of mirroring every pattern that you ever learn, every pattern anybody ever shows you, it's gonna be reversed for you. So that's really annoying, but I'll tell you what might be even more annoying is switching your entire setup playing backwards, because now, you lose this ability to share a drum set with any other drummer, right? And depending on the scenario, this could be really, really annoying. If you're playing a, a backline kit and you're sharing that with another drummer at a show, dude, that's a huge problem. That's a huge, huge problem. Um, you're also going to find that in mixing, you know, you might you might actually have a different approach to mixing when it comes to panning some of your audio. You would pan differently than everybody else, right? Now that that's a huge problem, but but there's pros and cons to either way that you do this. So you just want to think them through. But my advice as someone who you know admittedly plays the traditional way right hand lead and I cross over my left I would say you know man really really try to see if you can play open-handed on a standard setup kit I think there's a lot of advantages and when you weigh out all of the pros and cons I think that might be the sweet spot so give it a shot I also just think that playing style is really cool and we actually have another question in here that will bring us back to this topic of open-handed playing but good question man for sure Next question is from Harry D. Winch. He asks, other than singles or doubles, what is your favorite rudiment to use around the kit? Uh, So for me, this is an easy one. The answer is the six-stroke roll for sure. Um, Part of that is due to the fact that I just learned it first. I learned that rudiment really, really early on, so I've got more time playing it than anything else. It's probably my fastest rudiment other than like a straight up single stroke or a double stroke roll. Um, I can do a lot of stuff with it. I've worked a lot on mobility with that rudiment so I can move it around the kit pretty easy. Um, But honestly, one of the things that I love the most about the six stroke roll is that you can split it in half. So if you have right, left, left, right, right, left, it is so conceptually and mathematically simple to think of that as two separate patterns. So right, left, left, individual pattern and right, right, left, individual pattern and Developing the ability to mix and match those two patterns really expands the six stroke roll. So for example, let's say that we have one measure of 16th note triplets. One and a, one and a, two and a, two and a, three and a, three and a, four and a, four and a. So what I want you to do is think about beats one and three, one and a, one and a, three and a, three and a, and you're gonna play those as only the first half of the six stroke roll. Right, left, left, right, left, left. That's what we're playing in beats one and three. In beats two and four, you're gonna play the second half of the six stroke roll. Right, right, left, right, right, left. So you would have a pattern like this right, left, left, right left, left, right right left, right, right left, right left, left, right, left, left, right, right left right right left, right, left, left, right left, left, right right left right, right left right left, left, right, left, left, right, right left right, left, so you can hear that the accent moves from the earlier portion of the beat to the later portion of the beat and in triplets, this gets really interesting right because displaced triplets always have sort of a mystical sort of sound to them, right but Anyway, the idea is, uh, well, by the way, I should say, this concept heavily expanded in my triplet concept masterclasses on OrlandoDrummer.com. There are four of them, four hours of this type of material about, I don't know, ripping apart the six-stroke roll and doing all sorts of cool stuff with it, but um, there's four hours of masterclasses there. I'll have that link down in the description, but some rudiments are like this and some are not right there are some rudiments where even conceptually splitting it down the middle and then toying around with the placement of the rudiment it doesn't work with all rudiments it it works with some and not others but for me the six stroke roll was always mathematically one of the most interesting because it wasn't difficult for me to think about splitting the rudiment down the middle and sort of toying around with some of those placements uh like the order in which you play the halves of the six stroke roll so that's sort of for me a part of my answer but the real answer. Answer is I've been playing it a long time. That's why the six-stroke roll is my favorite. Next question is from Luca.Fofo, F-O-F-F-O. He asks, how do you figure out if drumming is what you want to do in life? That's a tricky one, man. Tricky and a touch philosophical, right? Um, The easiest answer I could ever give you here would be if the thought of doing anything else sucks compared to drumming, right? I mean, I don't, I don't get to tell you how drumming feels to you, what your relationship uh, to playing drums actually is. But if you wake up in the morning and it's the first thing you think about, and when you go to bed, if it's the last thing you think about, do that. Do that. Whatever that is, and I don't care if it's welding or floral arrangements or you know selling insurance, like whatever. You know, this is sort of a. Um, like a nietzsche freudian type thing, in that we don't necessarily control our values. Like what what is valuable to you, try and change it, and you'll find that you can't. Values or things that you perceive to be meaningful tend to manifest themselves all on their own. You don't have a lot of control over that. So the idea that you could choose to be a professional drummer or chase down that career but it doesn't appear meaningful to you, that seems like a total lost cause, you know? Let's just pick pick something that you're genuinely not interested in at all. Try to make yourself more interested. You'll find that you can't do it. So things that we perceive to be valuable or meaningful, they tend to present themselves to us that way. And if that's how drums are presenting themselves to you, then that is the career that you should chase, absolutely. But if at any point, the pursuit of of, of an art or of a craft, if it feels um, monotonous in a way where it doesn't have meaning anymore, if it feels that way, then, man, just, save that for another life, another day, right? That that can't possibly be the career that you should be chasing if it doesn't present itself as meaningful to you. So uh, I, I would say just try to t- have an honest assessment of how do drums make you feel? If you find yourself waking up and thinking about it, man, for one reason or another, the art of rhythmic expression has presented itself to you as deeply meaningful. And to me, that is worthy of, um, that's worthy of a pursuit. So yeah, I know it's sort of somewhat of a philosophical answer, but that that's how I would approach that thing. That's the advice that I would give to my son or daughter, or you know anybody that I really cared about um, when it came to you know what's worth my time chasing. It's a hard question to answer, but it's one that it, that's uh, it's worth spending a lot of time thinking about. So hopefully those insights are helpful, man. Uh, next question is from Nexoka four uh, four five six, asking what do you think about the quote "Don't worry about the chops; it's all about the groove." Well, taken literally, um, no, literally no. How could it be all about one type of rhythmic expression, right? If we go to the largest philosophical level of this question, it's all about, you know, a a very, very specific repetitious type of rhythmic expression. Like, why? Like, isn't it about whatever I deemed to be valuable or meaningful, right? Um, if you wanted to go to a desert island and play drums for no one, and play nothing but single strokes in a circle around the kit as fast as you could, that is equally as valid. Now, are you gonna make money with that? No. Are you gonna join a band with that? No. But but that's up to you, right? It's, it's a matter of of validating what it is to be a musician. And to me, someone who expresses music is a musician it's just that simple right so in terms of you know just your own personal playing your personal enjoyment your perception of value when it comes to to creating rhythmic ideas expressing rhythmic ideas in your mind through the voice that is an instrument dude it's all valid it's all valid there can't possibly be one type of rhythmic expression that's more valid than another now if you said you know, what we're talking about here is making money. We're talking about being a professional drummer. So you have to keep in mind, well, what what specifically pays the bills here? What is someone going to hire me for? Yeah, then the groove argument becomes a lot stronger of one, for sure. If you spend all your time working on chops and very little time working on groove, you will not be optimized as a player to play in a band or go on tour, at least not most bands, right? Not the ones that are gonna pay a lot of money, Um, you know, because let's be honest, music in general that does not have a lot of groove well, we would call that pretty abstract, right? That's that's commonly not a type of music that many people are going to enjoy um, when it comes to popular music, not just pop music, but just music that is widely consumed by a large amount of people. Yeah, yeah, most of it's groove, for sure. Um, it doesn't mean that anything else is musically invalid. It's just, you gotta talk about what parameters we're, we're using here. So if it's a money thing, if it's a career thing, yeah, probably you're gonna wanna work on groove quite a bit, but if we're talking about the philosophical or existential value of rhythmic expression, dude, it's all the same. Play whatever you want. My honest opinion, work on both 50-50. That's probably your safest bet, or even better, work on whatever you want, so long as it it, you know, serves your goals, whatever your goals are. If you watch a choppy drummer and you think, you know, those chops are absolutely sick and I wanna play that, then dude, you should absolutely go work on that, for sure, for sure. And if you said, hey, well my goal is to, to join a pop band, well yeah, dude, you probably shouldn't work on the chops too much, let's let's stick to groove for the rest of the year, right? So, all relative, but hopefully that answer makes sense. Uh, next question is from Greg Laveyan Viaga, Laviaga. Cool ass name. Greg asks, what about cable hi hats So, this is what I was mentioning earlier when we were talking about uh, playing open-handed or, or sort of a left-hand lead setup on a normal kit. You know, open hi-hats is sort of the, that's that magic formula for the right-handed traditional player to experiment with open-handed playing. And there's a drummer I'd love for you guys to check out named Louis Palmer. Louis Palmer is a sick drummer, actually pearl artist and a minor artist. Awesome, awesome drummer. Um, you know, private teacher, makes really, really good online content. Um, he actually has a Pearl Masterworks, not too too dissimilar looking from my kit. But I saw some videos of him recently playing um, an open-handed hi-hat setup, and the way he did that was with a cable hat. So he's got the cable hat uh, running where his left foot is in the normal position, but the cable runs so he has his hi-hat sort of where I keep my crasher hats, like kind of the center of the kit, or where, where you might put a ride symbol, so slightly to the right, Um, of your rack tom. And honestly, I've never played this setup on my own, but it looks like a lot of fun. Every time I've used the cable hat, it's cool because it it makes sense physically. It doesn't feel any different than a normal hi-hat. They're really responsive. Like that cable is no different than the cable used in a throttle cable or a brake cable, um, like on, on a motorcycle or on a car. So if you can imagine like a really responsive throttle on a motorcycle, it feels just like that. No matter how long the cable is, it still has this snap to it. So I was really surprised the first time I ever sat down at a cable hi-hat, not that I got a lot of time with it, but it did feel surprisingly normal. The hi-hat responded exactly the same as it does with a pull rod. So if you're ever wondering if there's like a feel difference, I don't think there is at all. I've I've never experienced that. But I do wonder, you know, what sort of Pandora's box are we playing here with a cable hi hat? Because if you got used to that and your hi hat was like on the right side of the kit, well, now you're open-handed playing, right? So that's that comes with this this whole host of interesting things. But then the next question I have is, what goes where your hi hat used to be? Because that is a high activity piece of real estate, right? Like clearly a lot of things happen to the left of your snare drum, but if there's no hi-hat there, what sort of stuff could you put there? Would you do another tom? Would you actually do your regular rack tom? Could you just move your, a 10 or a 12 inch rack tom, whatever you have in front of you, could you move that over to the left? Would you just do more cymbals? Would a floor tom go there? Like there's so many questions I have that I would have to experiment with all of these things. But overall my answer is, it's a really cool underused piece of technology, the cable hi-hat. I think it could, could change the landscape of drumming if that were adopted as the primary you know, piece of hardware that uses your, your hi-hat. Man, that would change a whole lot of things. But it seems underused. Like a lot of people just haven't really um, gone down that wormhole yet. But I'd love to get my hands on one and give it a shot, man. I think it could open some really, really um, interesting doors for sure. And if you wanna see a, an example of a really awesome drummer using it, definitely check out Louis Palmer's um, Instagram. He's got some cool videos up there. Next question is from Day underscore Drumworks. That's D-E-Y underscore Drumworks. He asks, um, how do you start the recording process for drum content? And this is a great question because starting is the hardest part, right? Knowing where to hop into this new world of audio and video recording, it can be really intimidating. So there is one preliminary question I would ask yourself before you start spending money and start researching all this gear that you're gonna buy. And that is, where do you want this to end up? You know, do you see the art of recording or the art of content creation uh, as it applies to drums, do you see this as something that you would eventually want to do full time? Or is this a problem that you just wanna kinda get solved so you can make some drum content and then move on? Because what you're really interested in is, let's say touring or writing an album or joining a band or doing session work or teaching. If any of these other more traditional job descriptions in the drum industry fit you, and you're not particularly interested in going all the way down the content creator wormhole, then I would say, you know, this is gonna be a lot simpler for you. You can explore things like a two mic setup or a three mic setup. You can buy um, an interface or a mixing board that has only four channels on it. You know, there's a lot of, uh, and I don't mean this in a negative context, but there are a lot of corners that you can cut, right? There's things that you don't have to necessarily worry about if you just want to be someone who has the the capacity to make decent drum content online. But if you want this to be your job, if you want to run a recording studio one day, or if you want to mimic the sounds that you've heard on albums for years, if you really, really want to chase down the art of recording and the art of videography, you're not going to be able to cut many corners because going with a minimalist setup, whether it be uh, in audio or in video, well, the minimalist setup is not what people use to make platinum albums, for example, they use all all the expensive microphones, all the expensive interfaces, um, all the expensive software, all the expensive plugins, and it's going to take you some time to build up an arsenal of gear to sort of recreate or replicate some of these high production sounds and images that you might see. So if you have a general idea of where you would like this to be, where you, you know, what your level of involvement is when it comes to um, the videography world or the audio world, that's gonna determine, you know, what type of gear you're really shopping for. So let me give you a couple examples. You know, if you said, I just want a meat and potatoes setup, I want my my drum videos to look good, to sound good, but I'm really not chasing this like world-class production. In that case, I would look into a solution like, um, you know, some of these Zoom handy recorders, right? There's several different models. Um, I wanna say the the Q series is one with higher end audio. Um, it's essentially like um, like an independent little recording box that you buy. It, it, it has an SD card that goes in it, it's pretty simple. You can plug in a couple of XLR cables to them, so that would be um, like two overhead mics, for example. You know, and you can call it a day on audio with something like that. You're not gonna have this crazy ability to tweak the sound and to mess with it very much, but it will give you a high enough quality sound. For microphones, you could buy something like... Uh, an AKG C214. You know, these are microphones. I want to say in the four to six hundred dollar range each, and you buy a couple of those. And I know that's still a lot of money, but it's going to get you a really, a really high quality sound that will last you for years. You know, there's other options too. You can go with a a two channel interface like the uh, the Focusrite um, Claret or Scarlett. They have two channel interfaces. Actually, this podcast right now, you're listening to a Claret two-channel interface. And while I have two uh, vocal microphones plugged into it most of the time, if I plug two overhead mics into it, it would be a totally, totally functional little miniature drum audio setup right so you know something like that is is um, I think of interest to a lot of people because it does get you a high quality sound but it's not that hard um, to just get your feet wet and kind of get in and start doing these basic mixes now if we're talking video as well you know you can go GoPro you can use your iPhone um, you know the drum filming lesson pack that's on orlando drummer.com gives you a whole breakdown of all the different cameras camera options that you have whether that's a a camcorder a DSLR a point and shoot a GoPro an iPhone we discuss all those different types of camera setups. Um, But even if you said I don't want this to be my my full time career and I just want something functional that works, you're still gonna wanna separate your audio and your video. Um, So just definitely keep that in mind. There's really no camera that's gonna give you satisfactory drum audio built in. So you do wanna have those two things separated. Now if you said hey, I think I wanna make this my entire career. I'm interested in getting the high end audio gear, the high end video gear. In that case, the first and most important thing is that you get enough channels to record a drum set. Now, when you have a huge drum set, you're gonna need at least eight channels. That means eight different microphones placed all around the kit. So a microphone on each one of your toms, on your snare, two overheads, a kick drum mic, you're gonna need at least eight channels. So in that case, I would look at, let's say the Scarlett eight channel interface or the Clarette 8 Pre-X, which is what I use to record my kit. that's definitely gonna be the way to go just because you have to get get your feet wet in the mixing world. So you're gonna to wanna to get a, a DAW, a digital audio workstation that's recording software for audio. That would be logic uh, for, for most people, but there are, there are several others, Cubase. Um, and then you would, you know, effectively start getting getting your drums multi-tracked, Set up all eight channels, record it, and then spend some time mixing. This is really getting getting all the way into the weeds in the world of recording, and you gotta spend a lot of time doing this sort of thing. But you're gonna want more channels for sure. It gives you more control over your mix. Um, and the more professional you want your mix to sound, the more control you're going to need to have over it by tracking at least eight channels. So is one of the big distinctions I think people need to make right off the bat, is where do you want this to End up? Is this going to be your career? Okay, well, you're going to need a lot more gear, a lot more microphones, a lot more channels to record in. And if you're not worried about that, then you can go with that, that simplistic audio setup. But if you make that decision, um, I think it helps you determine which gear is worth doing the research on and chasing down. So totally up to you. Um, and remember, there are tons of audio and video masterclasses all throughout OrlandoDrummer.com. If it's anything in the videography world, that would be the drum filming lesson pack. Um, that's like a three hour course on videography as it applies to drummers. Um, and then there are, there's a mixing masterclass. I have a final cut masterclass if you wanna learn about editing. Um, Microphone Masterclass if you wanna learn about microphones. So all things audio and video, all of that is extensively broken down on OrlandoDrummer.com. Would highly recommend checking that out and I got one question here from the member vaults of Orlando drummer.com this is Jamal S and he is asking uh, how am I liking the new EC2s on the kit love your recent solo thank you Jamal um, yeah so I posted a video maybe a week ago or so uh, just you know four or five minutes of jamming on the Masterworks kit um, and I have a new set of Evans EC2s on them and gotta be honest man does this drum set love clear heads it, it sounds so much better with clear heads I was not expecting that um, my only complaint. Still, with the EC2s, even though I like the tone a little better, is that they have this dampening and muting built in. And as I'm getting to know, this four ply birch drum set. I'm definitely learning that sustain is not its strong suit. It's not a very singy drum set at all. So I think I still wanna stick with clear because that was definitely a move in the right direction, going clear heads on this kit. But next up I wanna try um, the Evans G2. So it's a lot like the EC2 with no muting. I think I might lose a touch of, uh, there's a little bit of attack making that switch, but I'm not particularly worried about it because this is a hilariously attacky, bitey, aggressive sort of drum set, so I really don't think there's much I could do to remove the attack from this kit, but I think he can get a little bit more sustain out of going with an Evans G2, so that's gonna be my next move for sure. I actually order those this weekend just to give it a shot, but um, it's really annoying to keep switching drum heads because <laughs> I'm not, not only does it take a lot of time, but I'm not like actually ruining these heads. I'm just playing them lightly for like a week or two and then swapping them out. So I have all of these like partially used drum heads around. There's a part of me that's like, no, just stick it out, ruin this set of EC2s and then throw a new one on, but we'll see what I end up doing. But yeah, clear G2s are gonna be my next move, uh, but overall clear heads was the right move for this um, this very thin birch kit. I think it sounds amazing. So really really happy with the tones and I'm going to finish these ec2s off with the um, the remainder of the shed series lesson pack which obviously is a a lot of shedding and moving around the kit so I'm really just exploring the entire voice that is that instrument and super happy with the tones I'm getting right now but yeah more videos to come uh, featuring these heads and then g2s are up next and all right that is all I have for you in episode 32 of the Orlando drummer podcast remember uh, you can use promo code odpc on orlandodrummer.com it'll save you 25 percent on your first two months of online drum school. If you haven't checked out OrlandoDrummer.com, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's online drum school, and it's very much in the style of Netflix. So we've got about 175, maybe 180 hours of content there, ranging from, like we've talked about in this podcast, audio and video masterclasses, a lot of social media-oriented, content creator-oriented stuff. Uh, But of course, there's also... Everything drums, so rudiments, fills, grooves, chops, conceptual lessons on things like um, dynamics or special skill sets like kick and hand single splits, like all sorts of boot camps, master classes, survival guides, uh, in-depth courses, quick chops and grooves. You name it, I promise we got something that you guys will enjoy. Uh, and I also don't I don't mention this often, but we also have over 20 interviews with professional drummers, including uh, Luke Holland, Juan Carlito Mendoza, Charlie Ingen of Five Finger Death Punch, um, Forrest Rice, got a lot of cool guys that have stopped by the studio over the years and done really, really cool interviews. So definitely check that out as well. Code is ODPC, that's 25% off your first two months. Check it out, all links are in the description. And thank you guys so much for tuning in to this episode. Adam here, and I'll catch you in the next one. Later.